Good evening. So good to see you all here this evening at Incarnation. It's, my name's Liz Gray, and I'm uh, the senior pastor here, and I'm delighted to welcome you here for worship. So over the course of this season, we are talking, we're looking at the book of Mark, and we have entitled it Walking with Jesus, because we feel like the thing that we most need in our community is to be able to walk alongside Jesus and with him, to be able to represent him to the people we encounter day by day. And so over the last few weeks, we've begun to see Jesus step out in ministry. A couple of weeks ago, Amy talked about what that meant in terms of Jesus dealing with demons and beginning to heal people. Last week, Morgan helped us to recognize Jesus' life of prayer and the kinds of rhythms that he was seeking. And today we're going to talk about how Jesus begins to really proclaim who he is in a very different way. So the chapter that we were about to begin starts in his home. Yes, his home in Capernaum, or at least his home base. And people have crowded in to hear him talk. So let's stand as I read from the beginning of Mark's Gospel. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Reading in chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they couldn't get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down on the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise up, take your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The Gospel of the Lord. Have a seat. So forgiveness. Jesus makes a remarkable statement here about forgiveness, but I wonder... When you were last forgiven, or when you last had to ask someone for forgiveness, my guess is you won't have to go that back, far back in your memory to remember. It could be like 30 seconds ago, uh, when you just bumped into somebody as you were entering your pew, or as you were coming to, work, uh, to church and you started a fight, or, you know, whatever it was. There's probably been a moment um, where you've had to be forgiven, or where you have had to forgive someone else very recently. I met a lady many, many years ago, probably, um, well, actually, I know exactly how many years ago it was now. It was uh, 27 years ago. And she, her young son, had been killed by a DUI driver while standing on the sidewalk, holding his sister's hands. 
And she told me her story, and she told me that the only way that she kept going was by learning to forgive. It was the only way that she could handle getting up every day. And shortly afterwards, she became my first counselor as I began to deal with my lack of forgiveness to somebody who had hurt me as a child, because her example was a very powerful one for me. Her ability to forgive. It all seemed so straightforward in some ways. After all, you can say the words really quickly. Oh, I'm so, I forgive you. Of course, I forgive you. Yes, off you go. That's all marvelous. And the Colossians reading that Clara read for us beautifully can make it seem a little bit like that. Just very quick. I read it at my son's wedding two weekends ago. Such a beautiful picture of how relationships should be. The ability to just say yes, I forgive you, and to move on. Paul is right. We do need to forgive. If we have a complaint, yes, we need to forgive. But gosh, it's so much harder than that. But as hard as it is, it's also proportionately life-giving. So we're going to look briefly at the way that, first of all, Jesus forgives in the story, and then at the way that we need to forgive others, and then finally at the way that we are forgiven. So the story of Jesus forgiving this gentleman on the para paraplegic, paraplegic, whatever, on the, on the mattress is very familiar if you've grown up in churches. It's a great story to tell kids because it's so immensely picturable. You can picture the kind of clay house which Jesus was probably in. You can picture the people crowding into the doors. You can picture four people picking up their friends on, on a stretcher and carrying him towards the house because they've heard of Jesus. His, the message is beginning to get out that Jesus is someone who can heal. And they have a friend who they loved, and he was much more fun when he was running around rather than now that he's just lying paralyzed on a stretcher. So they go, okay, we'll take you. We'll take you to Jesus. But their disappointment on getting there and seeing the house so full, I mean, who knew he was so popular already? And then spotting the staircase up the side and going, oh, yeah, we know these clay houses. It's really easy. You just break in through the top, push aside the olives, which are probably drying on the roof, and make a hole. We can do that. And so up they go, and they lower this gentleman down in front of Jesus' feet. Picture the scene. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, his confidence. Can you imagine him standing there and going, oh, who am I going to get to mend that? You know, that sort of sense of there's this hole in the roof and there's bits falling on everybody who's sitting around and, and this stretcher being lowered down in front of them. Can you picture Jesus looking at the four friends, loving their faithfulness? to their friend, the, the way that they were so determined to bring him. Jesus looking at the man and understanding him, understanding that the man's deepest needs are not about his paralysis at this point. Perhaps that's a symptom, not a cause, but he forgives him. And then Jesus looking at the many, the listeners, the scribes, all these people who crowded around and the people who are both outraged outraged at the words that Jesus spoke of forgiveness, saying, only God can forgive. And, you know, in some ways, the priest with the goat up at the temple, but you, a man right here, no, you can't forgive. But God, Jesus is very clear. He's setting himself up here. He's saying that I can forgive sins because I can speak for God. So he declares forgiveness over this man. 
He overrules the temple system just like that, setting himself up as above and beyond it. And then look at the man. One of the things I find so extraordinary about the story is that he doesn't say anything. He just kind of gets up. But maybe he was just a bit stunned. After all, he'd arrived through a ceiling on a stretcher, paralyzed, and now suddenly he's not only healed but forgiven. There was probably quite a lot going on in his head at that point. So he clears off. And this whole idea about forgiveness and the body, so interesting how they all so intertwined. And as you read about things that happen in our bodies, we know that our bodies actually hold a lot of our memories in them. It's complicated. So Jesus forgave this man and healed him. And chaos erupts. There's this fantastic mix of people who are critical and can't actually look and see the good that's happened there and those who are just wanting to glorify God as a result of it. And then the next thing we know, the next little verse, Jesus is out by the shore. He just kind of removes himself from it and he goes off with his disciples. Imagine being one of the disciples then. Can you imagine all the thoughts that were going on in their heads? What they had just seen then? And I could, do you think they asked the questions or if they just kind of muttered amongst themselves, did you see what he just did? But Jesus always invites the disciples alongside him. And so he brings them along to watch, to learn, and ultimately he's going to get them to do. But here he's establishing his authority. This establishing his authority as the one who can forgive, breaking open this truth that he's not just a carpenter. There is so much more going on. So Jesus, as we go through these weeks, we'll hear him teaching more about forgiveness. And eventually we'll get to the bit where he teaches his disciples the prayer that we pray every week, forgive us, or probably every day, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And so clearly, we can't just sit around waiting all the time for Jesus to forgive us. We have a role as well, as Paul expounded in Colossians. We also are called to forgive. Put on then, as Paul wrote, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. This concept of being forgiven and forgiving is woven all the way through our liturgy, and you will hear it time after time as we confess our sins, as we exchange the peace, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, and ultimately, of course, as we come to the table. If one has a complaint, forgive one another. But how do we forgive other people? I'd like you to pull two things up in your head. One, the hardest thing that you've ever had to forgive. And secondly, the hardest thing that somebody has ever had to forgive you for. Let's talk about the first one, forgiving other people. Think about the thing which has been hardest for you to forgive in your life. As I was thinking about this, the longest time that I have had to ever spend forgiving one person well, it's probably quite a long time now because there was this period in my life between the age of about four and 13 when all sorts of hard things happened. And I won't go into the details here. It's not a good forum for that. But there were things that happened to me that made me ashamed and frightened. And it wasn't until I was 29 and pregnant with my third child that I began the work of forgiveness that I've now been engaged in for the last 27 years. Yes, you can add that up. 56. 
so that's quite a long time. It's a long time to be forgiving one person. So why has it taken so long? Well, the injury was complex. Trauma impacts our souls and our bodies in ways and our identity in ways which are way below our conscious minds. And so the things that are done to us can be below our ability to even recognize that they need forgiveness. Beyond our capacity, certainly, to forgive. Relationships can be so complex that we can be unable to distinguish between safe and unsafe. Our sense of responsibility, my sense of responsibility, was unformed. So I took on false responsibility. I was a child and thought as a child. And even as I've matured, it's hard. Forgiveness can be hard. Forgiveness doesn't happen with a word or a phrase for us. It happens with repeated words and phrases. Getting our hearts and minds in line with the actions and words that we speak. Inviting the Holy Spirit to come, to submit our sense of injury and self-righteousness to God over and over again. Forgiveness is not simple. It's at least as complex as the offense. Forgiveness also does not mean an excuse for culpability. If somebody has offended and the offense requires punishment, then until God forgives them ultimately or pays the price for them, there is a price to be paid. And so I think sometimes we can almost be persuaded that we have to just help people to navigate away a system so that they can avoid punishment. But sometimes retribution is required, both for their sake and for society's sake. So forgiveness does not exempt an offender from punishment or retribution. And really that is the remarkable thing that we remember week by week when we come here to the table, when we come to remember that we are forgiven and that the price for our sins has been paid. That's the whole point of the cross. And there are many other things, though, that forgiveness is not. It's not forgetting. It's not excusing. It's not simply being patient or being nice or hoping that it'll all go away. But there are many things that forgiveness is. Forgiveness can, for example, lead to reconciliation. I'm a South African. I grew up under apartheid, and I've watched with great joy the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions work through the horrors of apartheid and begin to help to establish ways that communities can talk together. The opportunity to invite people into the same room and to speak forgiveness to each other, it can be deeply, deeply healing. I'm so grateful for groups like that who are patiently working for reconciliation. But reconciliation also is not always possible. Somebody might move or die or go away or something. But we work for reconciliation where possible, where it's safe. Forgiveness is also critical to one's own development. It's clearly important to the offender to be forgiven. But it's so important, like it was for that lady I met so many years ago, to forgive. Forgiveness makes a difference to the forgiver. Forgiveness frees you. And ultimately, it frees the offender as they can go on to do their own work with God. Forgiveness is hard and repetitive and means relinquishing the right to be a judge and a punisher. It involves trusting the other person to God that he will deal with them both now and in eternity. Forgiveness is allowing God to have a look at your anger and fear and shame. 
And then as C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And so you might have had to forgive people, but what about yourself? What have you had to be forgiven for? What are the things you feel most deeply and most ashamed of? Where do you need to be forgiven, either by a friend or a family member or by God? Pause for a moment on the things that you have done that need to be forgiven. And it might be a point where you feel that itch of shame. In a few minutes, we'll come to the table, and before that, we'll have an opportunity to confess before God the things, our sins against God and against our neighbor. This is where every week we get to exhale and inhale as we are hear the words of forgiveness. This is where week by week we recognize our need for forgiveness. And perhaps you are mindful even now of something where you think, oh, I need to offer forgiveness to that person, or I need to ask forgiveness. And it might be that you can quickly do that in the piece, or it might be that you need to write a letter, make a phone call, take someone for coffee. But right now, what we can do is we can begin by coming to God and asking him both to forgive us and to allow us to see where we need to forgive. When you come to communion, that can be a very good time to relinquish things. Sometimes it can be nice even to turn your hands upside down, just quietly by yourself, and to just say, Lord, will you forgive me for those things? And recognizing having that you've been forgiven, to approach then with your hands up, waiting to receive the bread and wine, and to really believe that as you eat and drink, you eat and drink as forgiven people. It might be that you decide that today you're not going to take communion, and that's fine too. And sometimes people don't take communion for all sorts of reasons, and they just cross their arms. And you can do that because you don't want to take communion, or you can do that for just because you want to have a blessing. But perhaps if there's something where you've got some unforgiveness which you need to reconcile, that's an opportunity for you to just say, I need to forgive them before I come to the table. But I encourage you to allow God to forgive you to expose your sin to him, to ask him to touch it, to prod it, to push it, and then to release it. And then to eat and drink at the table, remembering that Christ died in order to forgive you, in order to pay your punishment. Somebody sent me this quote from Jean Vanier this week, and she always sends me great ones. But it said, We've been drawn together by God to be a sign of the resurrection and a sign of unity in this world where there is so much division and inner and outer death. We go out of here as a sign of the resurrection, a sign that God does make a deep difference in our lives and in the lives of our community. And so as you leave here tonight, I encourage you to leave knowing that you are a forgiven person and to take the steps you need to take to both extend and receive forgiveness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that you are a God who forgives, that you forgive the most egregious sins, you forgive the small discrepancies, you forgive everything that we come humbly to you with. And so we each have got our stories racing around in our minds, and each one of you now comes to you again saying, Lord, will you show us our places of unforgiveness? 
Will you show us the places where we need to be forgiven? Help us to be honest with ourselves, with each other, and with you. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you never leave us to do this work on our own, but that you guide and teach, that you push and prod and release. We open ourselves up to your work now. Amen.